you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. What happened to her? I don't think she... Did she? Did you guys hear her? The whole thing? I don't know. There's something going on with the uh, sound there. Uh, welcome to the big show, my family and friends. We certainly appreciate uh, you guys coming by. As always, we bring you the greatest authors, minds, uh, the CEOs, the billionaires, the Pulitzer Prize winners, the astronauts, the White House advisors, the people who uh, you see on TV all the time. They come on the show, tell us the tens of thousands of hours and hundreds of thousands of hours of research, sometimes a lifetime of research they put into their work. And they come in to enlighten you. We're the great delivery service. They sometimes call us the uh, the DoorDash of thought. That's not what they call us. It's stupid. I just made that up. Uh, the DoorDash of thought. That's where we hand deliver it to you and the podcast, and you can learn so much more. So, folks, uh, help us out. Refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, Chris Foss, one on the TikTok. Make sure you subscribe to the LinkedIn newsletter and the 130,000 group on LinkedIn. Uh, also, there's the new Chris Voss Facebook.com where you can go and interact with a Facebook group on LinkedIn or on Facebook. There's too many, too many of these Facebook and LinkedIn's. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, guys, we have an amazing author on the show. He's joining us for, I believe, his fourth tour of duty, if you will. Uh, Jude Morrow uh, is with us today, and uh, he joins us with someone who's going to be talking about his newest book. Uh, it's called Dan Cooper, based on the real story of the relentless pursuit of the Northwest uh, Orient Flight 305 hijacker D.B. Cooper. Welcome to the show, Jude, and a uh, special guest that we have with us today, yes. Eric Eulis. <laughs> Uh, so, guys, uh, tell me your give me your bios, give me your rundown for each of you on the show. I'll go first. My name's uh, Jude Morrow. And I write books uh, for a living. I suppose made my my name and loving out of speaking and writing about my experiences of being an autistic child in the mainstream school system and adult being a social worker and in business. And what I've done now is channel the autistic creativity and kind of hyper focus on topics. Uh, and the writing books, and uh, unfortunately for Eric and the DB Cooper Vortex, uh, I focused this latest one on the enigma and the complete mind melt uh, that is DB Cooper. So that is me in a nutshell, and my domain is jutemorrow.com. Come and chat. And by the way, a word of warning: if you do want to chat, you'll probably find it very hard to go away from the conversation because I will keep talking and talking and talking. I interact too much. <laughs> that's such a bad thing. There you go. And Eric, give us a rundown on you, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Eric Ulis is the name. Um, I'm a guy who's got an interesting background. For many years, I worked as a professional card counter, professional blackjack player. If you're familiar with the movie 21 with Kevin Spacey, the MIT uh -huh. guys, that kind of thing. Did that for a number of years. Uh, ended up leaving after I pretty much got barred every place uh, in Nevada. 
and uh, started pursuing some other interests, business, things of that nature. One of the things that I've always been interested in or long been interested is this, the mystery of D.B. Cooper. I believe I first heard about it in the late 1970s. Uh, about 15 years ago, I picked it up again. I thought, you know what? Uh, it's still a mystery. They haven't figured out who this guy is. Let me see if I can figure out who this guy is. And it started out as a guilty pleasure. And over time, it just morphed into something much bigger. Uh, I headlined a History Channel show on it in 2020. was on Expedition Unknown with Josh Gates in 2021. Uh, there was a Netflix show last year called D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? I was featured in that uh, show. Uh, and I'm also the organizer and founder of an annual event that takes place in Seattle, actually uh, coming up here, just the, uh, yeah, the end of August, or rather November, uh, called CooperCon. That's uh, all things D.B. Cooper. But uh, that, in a nutshell, is really kind of who I am and how I kind of accidentally fell into this D.B. Cooper uh, vortex. There you go, man. So we're getting into the D.B. Cooper universe. Uh, so give us a 30,000 overview of the book, Jude. What's inside of it? Uh, is this, is this, uh, have you fictionalized this at all, or is this an accurate accounting? Well, I've kind of tried to combine a mixture of both. Obviously, I wanted to create a historical fiction kind okay. of narrative of it, because with D.B. Cooper, the, I mean, you can describe the story in a few sentences, Guy gets on plane, guy gets money in parachutes, guy disappears, never to be found or heard from again. Mm -hmm. And that is really annoying. It's like, who the hell was this guy? Like, who just swaggered up to that counter, bought a plane ticket, got money, parachutes, was reasonably polite to people, put the stairs down and left and was never found. Like, that's the most infuriating thing ever. Where it's that's like, Fridays around here on this show. I, I know. And by the way, what's even, what's even more fascinating is that... Uh, Whenever I decided I'm going to write about D.B. Cooper, who do you go to? You go to Eric Eulis. And we've been talking pretty much nearly every day and did for over a year. And now I'm hearing that you're a professional blackjack player and card counter. Like, there you go. Uh, how am I only finding this out now? Like, I mean, and Chris, you have my complete permission, right? By the way, D.B. Cooper, there's a lot of stuff out there. If you want to do the card counting interview, that's fine. I'll sit here. I'll get popcorn. Uh, I want to hear this. <laughs> there you <laughs> like, go. But so this, this is more interesting to me. So I'll go back to the, the, the question. So, yeah, this infuriating story. And I suppose for my own selfish reasons, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look at the case evidence and talk to people who know stuff about this. And I'm going to craft a character that I believe is believable and that meets my desire to have a beginning, a hijacking and an afterward. And hopefully it resonates with people. There you go. So let's assume people don't know who D.B. Cooper is. You know, a lot of these Gen Z folks, they're not uh, up to hip what was going on in the 70s. Maybe they are. I don't know. Uh, but uh, tell us who uh, D.B. Cooper was in this experience. I'll let you guys uh, banter that question back and forth. I'll, I'll, go ahead, I'll go ahead and take the question. And I want to start off by saying this is real. This isn't fake. This is real. Uh, basically, there's a guy, uh, an unknown guy, in his mid to late 40s, presumably, shows up at Portland International Airport on Thanksgiving Eve 1971 and buys a one-way ticket on Northwest Orient Airlines to Seattle, typically a 36-minute flight from Portland, Oregon. 
within the hour, he's on the jet, and just as it's taxing to the runway, he hands one of the flight attendants a note which says it ha- he has a bomb, and additionally, he would like the flight attendant to come sit next to him. So she does come sit next to him, and he opens up his attache case and shows what appears to be a bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just as the jet is rolling down the runway, taking off again, heading for Seattle. Uh, at this point, he asks her to write down his demands, which in effect amount to $200,000 in cash, uh, two front parachutes and two back parachutes. Uh, he wants all of this stuff uh, to be stationed, uh, situated at the Seattle airport before he'll let the jet, the jet land. And he wants it in place by 5 p.m. And that starts a whole series of events. Uh, eventually, everything does make its way to SeaTac Airport about 40 minutes late. The jet lands. Uh, the first thing to come on board the jet is the 200000 bucks in cash. Wow. At that point, D.B. Cooper lets the passengers go. There are 35 passengers he let go in addition to a couple of the flight attendants. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parachutes then make their way on board the jet and the jet gets refueled. At that point, he says, I want, you know, I want to fly to Mexico. I don't want you landing anywhere in the United States. Uh, and in addition, uh, this is how I want the jet to fly. I want the landing gear to remain down. I want the jet to remain unpressurized. I, I don't want the jet to fly over 10,000 feet. I want mm-hmm. the flaps at a very specific 15 degree setting. And very importantly, he wants the air stairs deployed and hanging open upon takeoff and while the jet's flying. Uh, this is a Boeing 727, which is unique because it has an air stairs apparatus that deploys from the back bottom of the fuselage. So he literally wants this thing hanging open, at, hanging open as the jet takes off. Uh, this starts a whole series of combination with the pilots. Uh, they simply say flying dirty like that. There's no way they could make it to Mexico uh, mm-hmm. nonstop. They ultimately agree to uh, land in Reno ostensibly to refuel to continue the journey south. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 36 minutes after takeoff from Seattle, as the jet is approaching the Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon area, the pilots experience what they call a pressure bump. Uh, so they surmise that he has jumped from the plane, but they're not sure. Uh, the jet lumbers along all the way to Reno. And once it's landed in Reno, the authorities board the jet and indeed determine that D.B. Cooper jumped. So hmm. he jumped with basically everything except one item, a skinny black clip on tie and, and two of the parachutes. But he jumped to never be seen or heard from again. So at this point, officially, we don't know how he got to the airport in Portland. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what his real name is. We don't know whether he lived. We don't know whether he died. Uh, And one critical thing that I forgot to mention early on is that the name that he gave when he checked in at the uh, ticket counter in Portland was Dan Cooper. This is 1971. You're not rolling in with identification. Yeah. Or anything of that nature. You just give him a name. So he gave the name Dan Cooper. Now that was <clears throat> erroneously reported as D.B. Cooper, 
by the media. And uh, very quickly thereafter, however, uh, many people in the media and the authorities realized, no, 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 the name wasn't D.B. Cooper, it was Dan Cooper. But the name D.B. Cooper stuck because D.B. Cooper is a pretty badass name. And here we are 52 years later, the mystery persists. There you go. He's never been found. Uh, I think a lot of people have been pulling who who done it and stuff. Uh, any thoughts on that, Jude? <clears throat> you know what? I the reason why I called it Dan Cooper is because that's what the guy called himself. Yeah, that's what he called. That's what he called himself. So it's like that. That's why I'm going to call it that. He he didn't give the name as that. Um, you know what you said. You know with the Gen Zs and the Millennials and stuff like that. Whenever I said in my social medias and stuff, I'm writing a book about DB Cooper. Everybody was like, who? You know who who the hell is that and it's like oh dear where i think with the db cooper story it's going somewhere similar to where titanic went where you know in the maybe in the 30s and the 40s there was some revived interest with walter lord's novel and then the night to remember movie and then james cameron decided to come along and make a full set replica of, of the titanic to kind of revive interest in it and i think to keep a story alive historical fiction needs to come in somewhere but i tried to stick as close to the actual case facts and evidence as much as I possibly could. I did stick with a 95-5 rule where there's some things that stray outside of it to give a wider view of events because the way I've written it is Cooper telling his own story of why he did this and where he went afterward. Ah, so where do you begin his story when you're writing the historical historical fiction for this? Where do you you start it? Do you start it as, well, he was growing up in a nice little neighborhood or how did that work yeah i went down the canadian angle the dan cooper name mm-hmm. it's closely aligned to like a, a canadian comic now do i think in real life that that is the actual connection probably not he probably extracted the name from an orifice because mm-hmm. why would you give yourself a name that could easily be linked back to you like if somebody uh matching the fbi sketches in 1971 it's like, ah, that looks like this guy down the street, and that's the weird guy that likes this weird Dan Cooper comic. I'm going to call the cops. You know, it's going to be so easily linked back. I say he probably just pulled it out of the phone book mm-hmm. that morning. And, it, you know, it's it's kind of fun. You know, it's, people get, like, a romantic view of it. And I like empowering that romantic view of it, like the creativity, you know, and the, the discussion of it. But here's the thing. Whenever you look at case evidence, when you look at 302s, right, and you want to know what did what did he look like? And do you know what word comes back, Chris? What? Everybody. He looked like freaking everybody, Mister Everybody. Right. So okay. So he's a guy that looks like everybody. Oh, right. Okay. Question two. Well, what did he sound like? You know, you have the the physical aesthetic. You know what what was his audio? What did he sound like? He sounded like no one, a non discernible accent. So you wow. have to create a main character that looks like everybody and that sounds like nobody. And I was like, challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. There you go. There you go. Um, like, how do you do that? That's like the Everest of a character. There you go. So, uh, as Eric alluded, um, it, it seemed like he had a lot of requests. I mean, is it possible with this, you know, the 15 degree flap and some of the other elements you described? Is it possible he could have been a pilot or, or see a military? He seemed to know a lot about how to, you know, have this be able to jump out of a plane. Yeah, there are there are indications that he was familiar with uh, aerospace and general avi- and aviation in general. 
and also the Boeing 727 specifically. And the, indeed, the authority started immediately looking at Boeing. And I think that's mm-hmm. a safe bet. Again, it's important to remember for people who are listening here, you know, this is 1971. This isn't 2023 where you fire up the Internet or ask Siri and you get all the answers to every question you had, uh, had desire within a matter of seconds. So uh, I think that's a fair assumption that he probably uh, was, was knowledgeable about aerospace, quite knowledgeable about aerospace, uh, just given his age, which I believe was probably around 50 years of age in 1971. Mm-hmm. That ties him uh, to mm-hmm. have either served in the, the latter end of World War II or perhaps in Korea. Um, and so, of course, you know, that could be factored into it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's it's and, and there's a lot that, you know, perhaps we'll get into a little bit further down the road here uh, today. But uh, that with respect to that clip on tie that I mentioned that he left on, on the jet that was re- recovered in Reno, Nevada, the skinny black clip-on tie that had been purchased at JCPenney years earlier. Uh, 1971, it didn't provide much in terms of evidence, but in later years, especially more recently, it's actually served as a treasure trove. And I don't think it's a mere coincidence that uh, in recent years, as we've uncovered, you know, particles and things of that nature that Mm -hmm. came from the tie, that they indeed appear to point to the aerospace sector. So Uh I think that's a fair bet. Yeah. Does, uh, I mean, has DNA been possible in this, or is it just not, there's no DNA that they can try? Well, they did uh, attempt to pull a DNA profile in 2000, uh, in 2000 or 2001, uh, and, and again, this was right before September 11th, so a lot of stuff got, you know, sort of backburnered after September 11th came along. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they came up with what they believe is a partial profile for D.B. Cooper, partial DNA profile. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to measure the veracity of that because they haven't really said much about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have looked at some suspects and so forth. More recently, however, I'm actually involved with a lawsuit in a lawsuit against the FBI, the Department of Justice, oh, yeah. trying to get access to D.B. Cooper's tie because there is a, a specific part to the tie that I believe may well possess a complete D.B. Cooper DNA profile that is not contaminated. So uh, it's actually been eight months since the lawsuit's been filed. It's slowly working its way through the federal courts in Washington, D.C. Uh, but uh, what the, the exciting thing about that is that, uh, you know, this is 2023, DNA testing technology today is light years ahead of what it was 10, 15 years ago. And Mm -hmm. this actually has the potential to be the silver bullet. It has the potential to actually solve the case. And there was no fingerprints left behind either, huh? Or were there? There were were several fingerprints in the 60s of fingerprints, different fingerprints that they recovered from different parts to the jet. Uh, but they honestly, they don't know whose they are. Uh, I, if, I think it's a safe bet to assume to assume that DB Cooper probably wiped most of the areas that he yeah. would have touched, and probably didn't leave any fingerprints behind, or at least not much to speak of in that area. Yeah, I mean, it's it, to have that to have that uh, opening on the plane where you're going to jump, you know, hanging out the back and stuff. You, you kind of have to know some things about planes or military or. How to jump, probably too. I don't know, and, and I guess do they? I guess there's certain parts of is it is of the area that they think he jumped in, right? 
Well, well, uh, the flight path. Ah! <laughs> yeah, the flight path. They have. They have a general. They have a general idea of, of where he was. It's been a matter of, of quite a bit of controversy as to specifically where the jet was and, and where the jump took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally speaking, we know it was in the Vancouver or Washington area. Uh, and indeed, that's. Uh, I should mention that uh, in 1980. So at this point, some eight years after the skyjacking, uh, there were there was actually a portion of D.B. Cooper's ransom that was found buried on a, a beach along the Columbia River called right. Tina Bar, spelled T-E-N-A, Tina Bar. Uh, and that is in Vancouver, Washington as well. So uh, that's sort of a, a mystery within a mystery how $6,000 of D.B. Cooper's money ended up sitting by itself, three packets just below the surface of the sand in, in a very rotted state. So the money had clearly been there for an extended period of time. Oh, wow. But I think that does lend a hell of a lot of uh, credence to the notion that indeed he did jump in in the Vancouver, Washington area. Wow! Didn't wasn't there a thing or a rumor or something I saw where that somebody thought they'd found his parachute? I don't know. Um, well, uh, was sure. Yeah, I mean there was. Yeah, there was uh, a parachute that was found in Amboy, Washington. Uh, several years ago, but the authorities determined that it was not D.B. Cooper's parachute. Uh, I'm comfortable. Uh, I'm comfortable okay. with that assessment. However, that is also a matter of some controversy. There are others that are saying, yo, you know, slow down there, Turbo. Don't be so quick. Maybe that is D.B. Cooper's parachute, but uh, I, I, I tend to think it wasn't. Ah, there you go. See, I knew I'd heard something about that. So, Jude, uh, tell us more about the character you built, how you put him together, and how, how did you flush him out? Well, what I did, and this is kind of ties into a bit of a bonus point from uh, Eric's point about aviation, mm-hmm. is that what I wanted to do, first of all, was find out what Cooper actually said that's not really disputed by anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, th- things like, uh, now there's some lines that are attributed to D.B. Cooper that there's no reference for, like the sort of upsettingly famous one, it can be done, do it. There's no reference for that anywhere that I could ever find. I don't know, maybe Eric, I'm open to correction there, but uh, I didn't find a reference for that. But one thing that he did say, where I wanted to have some sort of aviation background with him, you know, especially with Vietnam, it was of that era, where certain occupations seem to know their own, and pilots are one of those. Mm-hmm. And whenever the fuel trucks were refueling that was taken away, you know, Cooper was saying, you know, what the hell's taking so long? You know, this shouldn't take this long. And the pilots had said back, to him through the intercom and through the stewardess through the intercom we're waiting on ifr clearance you know instrument flight rules clearance uh-huh. and cooper said back to them we can pick that up in the air we don't have to wait for that uh-huh. and that's a very piloty aviation thing to say because yeah. i mean i mean for for this like i mean i've been skydiving myself yeah for this, and pilots do have their own language mm. they do like they speak in acronyms it's almost i don't want to say culty Mm-hmm. But there are a group of people, a small group of people that have their own language, and Cooper seemed to speak it. And another interesting thing as well, the guy didn't swear. He didn't use profanity. So you get a cool, calm, and collected person. You know, uh, uh, I mean, he didn't do that. I can't on you, motherfucker. You know, it, there yeah, was none of that. There was, like there was a no crazy terrorist. There was no waving a bomb. There was no, you know, gun sideways in someone's face. 
you know, so you can use a lot of those little things to craft a character. Now, he didn't just become this cool, calm, collected avionic in, mm-hmm. in, in the airport reading the paper. So it's kind of like working backwards from that to kind of get to the point where how he would know all this knowledge, why he behave in the way that he did, mm-hmm. and ultimately how he would maintain that afterward to not be caught because... Uh-huh. The, the guy is quite unremarkable when you really look at him. Like, as far mm-hmm. as a character, this guy is beige wallpaper. This guy is vanilla ice cream, where mm-hmm. he's not overly remarkable. So much so that if he jumped out of the plane and tried to throw up on the parachute and the thing burst and he fell in the river or became barefoot, nobody missed him. Yeah. Or the second thing was, you know, this guy was so stuck on the wall, this beige wallpaper man, that nobody thought, that's the guy. Because most of the people suspected of being D.B. Cooper were very colorful characters. I mean, there's, there's about 10 suspects I can think of off the top of my head could have Hollywood left, right, and center, their own books, everything, and some of them do. But I just think Cooper was a boring old fart, and that's how he got away with it and how he got so, so undiscovered up to now. But that's a fascinating thing. He was too mm. so boring that he's fascinating. It's like a paradox. It's like chilies. Some of them are so hot that they're addictive, that they're amazing. It's yeah. like, wow, this is this is great, but it's there's no fun in it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know it's if that's almost, a good analogy, but it's as good as I can give. It's almost like, uh, I mean, he, he sounds like a very cerebral guy. Like you say, he's not like a terrorist running around screaming, uh, but he's also... Uh, He's he's trying not to create a profile. Maybe maybe he maybe he was ex FBI too or CIA. He knew that how not to create a profile. But yeah, that's it. it it's really interesting. Um, so in the historical fiction, do you write? Do you do you flesh out what he does for the rest of his life? I do, I do. I, I, because with Cooper, this was a guy that needed money. And this is a guy that needed money very quickly. Uh, I think it's, it's generally accepted that this man was not a career criminal. Like nobody in their 302s said that they noticed a guy in PDX chewing a toothpick and flipping a coin. Like nobody thought this guy as, a, as the mob or the Hells Angels motorcycle club, like he wasn't wearing like a leather cut underneath his black suit or his trench coat, where this was a guy that just l- fell on hard times. This guy needs money very, very quickly. Quite Walter Whitey. If that makes yeah. sense, a bit, breaking, a bit breaking bad. And that was a big influence on uh, my story. And as a kind of a, an interesting side note, uh, for any Breaking Bad fans, Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, was very heavily influenced by D.B. Cooper for the character of Gus Fring. You know, mm-hmm. nondescript, you know, polite, not swearing. You know, where it, it made that character very, very menacing and interesting. You know, he wasn't screamy or shouty or anything like that. But, I mean, obviously because I have Cooper telling the story of why he did this, obviously oh. in the book he makes it. Mm. But, you know, kind of a was it worth it kind of angle. Did it mm. all go very well? Um, because a lot of people, you know, you know, the whole sticking it to the man thing, you know, he lands on the ground like Mary Poppins, uh, you know, and he goes away and has all the hookers and cocaine that he can ever have thrown at him with all this big bag of money. But did yeah. it really work like that? Was it a hollow thing? Who knows? Because he didn't gloat. I mean, yeah. it, like there, there was nobody that said after oodles of champagne and caviar, well, I was D.B. Cooper, and here's one of my notes with a serial number on it that the FBI kept track of. This guy didn't do that. Yeah. This guy just, you know, went back beige wallpaper and remained beige wallpaper until his dying day. And that's remarkable. 
He told it is because most 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 uh, most criminals will give themselves away. They have to brag about it. Only two. There's only two types of secret. Mm-hmm. One that nobody tells and it's kept, and one person that tells one person and then the whole world knows. If you yeah. tell one person, the whole world knows. Yeah, and and, and and sometimes they can't keep their mouth shut. Like you see the the no. Tupac murder. One of the guys who's involved in the murder of Tupac, you know, he finally started to run his mouth off and wrote a book, and uh, you know, he couldn't help but brag about it. And now he's, you know, twenty years later, whatever it is, he's been charged. So tell us about this CooperCon thing. This sounds really interesting. I didn't even know there was an event conventions for this. It's like Star Trek only for uh, uh, about DB Cooper, huh? That's right. Yeah, it started. Uh, twenty eighteen was the first year, so this is the fifth year of CooperCon. Uh, If you're doing the math, if you're doing the math, you would realize, well, it should be the sixth year, but uh, let's not forget the pandemic. We did not do it in 2020 because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So this is the fifth year, again, taking place in Seattle, November 17th through 19th. So it's a three-day event, and it's just an awful lot of fun. Uh, We have a lot of firsthand witnesses there. For example, we have a, a guy named Bill Mitchell, who is the guy who sat directly across the aisle from D.B. Cooper in the back of the jet. He was Bill was a then 20-year-old college sophomore, and he was mm-hmm. eyeballing Cooper quite extensively because of the fact that he was Bill was attracted to the young, then 22-year-old flight attendant who was spending an inordinate amount of time speaking with the skyjacker. Now, Bill didn't realize that they were being skyjacked at the time, but, oh. uh, but Bill Mitchell will be on stage. Uh, also, Larry Carr, who is a former FBI special agent, he actually headed up the FBI's investigation, uh, Norjack is the official name, uh, in, the, in the later years. And he was single-handedly responsible for actually bringing a lot of new information out uh, to the world, uh, which oh. I think really kind of reinvigorated the case. Uh, one of the other people we're going to have there is uh, is a copycat skyjack, skyjacker, a guy named Martin McNally, who several months after Cooper thought, you know, I can do the same thing and get away with it. And he actually did, except he got caught because he ended up talking about it later on, <laughs> which, is, uh, he, which is the way these things go. But uh, mm. uh, and, and McNally had no skydiving experiences, as far as I understand. But uh, in, in addition to that, we have, uh, you know, we'll have some presentations related to some of the science, so some of the newer things that we've learned scientifically. We'll have several panel discussions. But one of the things that really sets Cooper kind of apart, I think, from a lot of other events and really makes this fun is I uh, have made it a goal of mine in all the Cooper cons to invite audience participation. So it's not just a matter of Let's watch, you know, a couple people talk about D.B. Cooper for 50 minutes. We actually, the last 10 to 15 minutes is usually dedicated to me literally jumping out in the audience with a wireless mic and, and having uh, people uh, ask questions of those of us who are on stage. So that's a lot of fun. It gives people an opportunity to ask questions and, and voice theories and opinions of their own and that kind of thing. So it's a really, really cool event um, as far as that goes. Uh, is it okay if I mention the, the web address for the... Please uh, do. Please, yeah, okay. plug, plug away. Sure, yeah. It's uh, anybody who is interested in checking any of that out, if they just go to cooperconevents.com, cooperconevents.com, 
uh, you can pull up everything related to uh, to CooperCon and everything else. So, but it's a lot of fun. It really is. It's very enjoyable, and uh, and everybody's laid back. I mean, you know, you know, everybody's laid back. It's not a pretentious group. It's not a pretentious crowd. You know, there's all kinds of you know selfies being taken and, and things of that nature. But uh, and I also think that it, honestly, at this point in time, 52 years out really serves a solid historical purpose because a lot of the first-hand witnesses that were that that show up to these things uh you know whether it's the air traffic controller who managed the flight or the you know the 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 then teenage daughter of the late captain uh, scott or bill uh, bill mitchell the the passenger on the jet you know these people aren't going to be around forever needless to say and uh, and while these people are still around, you know, 52 years out, I think it's invaluable to to get them on the record uh, uh, unfiltered, you know, not not through somebody else's words. They, they speak directly to the audience and uh, and so forth. So I think that there's a real historical uh, there's real historical value in that. Uh, I'm confident that if, if, if in 48 years from now, the 100th anniversary of of uh, you know the DB Cooper mystery, and all of us are dead and gone, except maybe Jude will still be around. Uh, you know, uh, I'm confident that they'll be that researchers will be going back and looking at Cooper Con and a lot of what was was talked about there, and using that as as uh, really reference material um, uh, to to proceed with the investigation. There you go. I see a picture of a pilot and a and a stewardess on the. Uh website here are those the originals from the from uh no no the uh, i think you're talking about uh, a couple that showed up a couple of years oh, ago dressed dressed at, yeah they were they were period dressed uh, uh yeah. as a, a pilot and, and so forth a good looking couple i made out i might add yeah. uh but yes uh but uh yes yeah, so we actually you know it, it's not uncommon actually to have people show up dressed as db cooper or as one of the i was gonna know, say the, that's who i'd show up as yeah, or what are the flight attendants, or uh, or what have you? So <laughs> you could so. pull it off uh, uh, there, Jude. Uh, show up as DB Cooper. I, you know what? I, I'd love to come as DB Cooper, but I'm unfortunately not a boring old fart. This guy was maybe fifty plus. I have seventeen years to go. But do you know what I got? <laughs> I got a Northwest Orient man purse. No, it's not. It wasn't marketed at the time as a man purse. I think it was marketed as a shaving bag. But I'm absolutely oh. used to it as a man purse. So I will be landing into SeaTac Airport for CooperCon. I'll be there for all three days. I'm already hungover thinking about it, and I will have my Northwest Orient man purse. And Eric and me are going to Tina Bar where Cooper's money was buried. And it's going to be like Mecca. I'm just. I'm going to lie in the sand, just like this, like a big starfish. And it's private mm. property, and the, the owners are probably like, "Who the hell's this guy doing a starfish on our our beach?" <laughs> uh, and, that, and, and that'll be me, and I'll not regret it. And there's going to be a lot of fun and a lot of beers, and I'm really excited because you know what? Like this book was finished several months ago. Mm-hmm. Right, it was finished. It's been finished for quite a while. It's been out to the press, been out to review. It's come to your desk, um, and I'll even forgive you for not reading it, Chris. Just go, just just turn up, just get a flight to Seattle, and let's have the beer that we've been threatening to have. The last oh, that's an years. idea. Um, well, I mean, why? I mean, why? Why not? I mean, when why else not? are you going to get an opportunity like this? <laughs> I mean, this is this is like this is this is gold. I mean, uh, I'm really selling this, but uh, I I'm stuck in the vortex now. 
that's it. I'm there involved you. now. You, you know, like sucked in. You are committed, my yeah. friend. Is this yeah. what got you into? I know. I know. I've been. We're friends on Facebook and stuff. I know. I've been seeing you do uh, uh, parachute jumping and uh, kicking ass at it, taking names. Is this what got you into parachute jumping? Was the curiosity over DB Cooper? Yeah, it was there because I think with Cooper, he wasn't an experienced parachutist, and mm. I mean. What, how are you going to talk to an experienced parachutist? So I, I learned by doing, like for the last book, like I had to learn first aid for the last book with old 1960s first aid supplies that I bought hmm. um, because modern first aid stuff wasn't going to do any good. So I hmm. thought for this, you know what, I'm going to throw myself out of a plane or a helicopter or a hot air balloon uh, or whatever. And, and I've kept that up too. I didn't stop. Where with Cooper, I think in reality, he maybe did three or four jumps uh -huh. to pull this off. Uh, he probably he could have done it with one other mm -hmm. copycats did it with one but i thought i will be in an experienced parachutist and kind of like documented like when i get to the ground mm -hmm. and like what it was like to try and get the authenticity of the scenes of course i didn't have a briefcase bomb attached to me or two hundred thousand dollars because that would be quite frowned upon at most drop zones yeah to do that to replicate it completely It'd be cool if they finally solved the mystery. People love this thing, who done it, the conspiracy things. So give us your final uh, pitch on the book as we go out, Jude, and uh, we'll round up the show. Dan Cooper is my latest book about the hijacking of Northwest Orient Flight 305. You can get it in all major online bookstores, uh, bookstores near you, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever else uh, you get your books. And come to CooperCon as well. I'll pass over to Eric for the final plug for CooperCon. That's the main thing of this. There you go. Eric? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I would definitely encourage people, if they can do it, if they're in the Seattle area, to come to CooperCon. Again, it's uh, November 17th through 19th. But aside from that, if anybody's interested in, in, in me and some of the stuff that I've looked into uh, related to, in some of my research related to the D.B. Cooper case, uh, feel free to jump over my personal site, ericulis.com, E-R-I-C-U-L-I-S.com. And uh, I've got quite a bit of material there, uh, quite a bit related to, uh, to the mystery. I've written extensively about it, a number of different aspects. Uh, so for somebody who wants to just get a, you know, sort of a quick overview of the case and some of what has transpired over the last several months or rather several years, investigatively primarily with with uh stuff that i've done uh that's a good place to start and, and learn about the case and uh and go from there and don't be surprised if you find yourself at some point uh falling getting you know sucked into the cooper vortex and and contributing in some manner so <laughs> there you go get sucked in the vortex as you jump out the back of the plane maybe you guys should do a thing where uh you know you guys go up in a plane everyone jumps out and tries to see if they can land wherever I don't know, D.B. Cooper is, and uh, I don't know, land jumped or something like that. It's it's a wild story, man, and so uh, I, I think it will be just always a mystery wrapped in enigma, I suppose they like to say. Thank you. Thank you very much, John, for coming to the show. It's good to see you again, Jude. Thank you, Eric. We certainly appreciate it as well. It was a pleasure to meet you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. There you go. And did we get everyone's dot coms? I I think we uh, we got everything out there. All right, sounds good. Thanks for tuning in to my audience. We certainly appreciate it. Go to goodreads.com for Chess Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com for Chess Chris Foss, YouTube.com for Chess Chris Foss, Chris Foss One on the Tickety Talkity, and Chris Foss, Facebook.com. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>